Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? Decided to come to church versus uh, watching the Titans today, huh? Good for you. That's a good decision. I just want to throw that out there. A little, little passive aggressiveness to all the people that aren't here this morning because the Titans are playing at 930, but that's okay. All right. Good to see you guys. It'll get better. I'm not going to be like that all morning, I promise. So, so we've been working through 1 Samuel, and um, if you weren't here last week, Mike taught chapters 12 and 13 and uh, did a good job with that. That's a lot to cover. I was at the Saturday service. I was in um, Woodbury on Sunday, but he was, he was teaching here, uh, and I was here Saturday with my wife. Chapters 12, if you weren't here, we're in this, this, this book of the Old Testament, very fascinating book of the Bible, very fascinating considering all the things that are going on on the global stage right now. But in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, we see the Jewish people are transitioning from a time of being led by judges, a system of judges, to a monarchy, a system of a king. And so Samuel, who was once a judge and a prophet, in chapter 12 is transitioning out of being his role of a judge, because those don't exist anymore, and he's just going to be a prophet and and kind of almost like a spiritual consultant uh, to the leaders of Israel, okay? So he's moving out of that role, and he kind of gives a speech in chapter 13, Saul and and the people of Israel go to war with a a very common foe in the Bible, the Philistines, and they're in the middle of a battle, and Saul is waiting on Samuel to show up and make the sacrifices to God to get clarity on what's going on, and things aren't happening on Saul's timeline, and so what Saul does is he takes matters into his own hands. Uh, He looks at the circumstances. He doesn't wait on God, and he makes a sacrifice, which he wasn't qualified to do, and it proves that, that, that he is not a good king, that he, is, uh, he has taken things into his own hands. And we see kind of this, it's, it's kind of ominous in, in this foreshadowing, because we're going to meet David pretty soon, that Samuel walks up to Saul and says, man, the torch is being taken from you. God has found a man after his own heart. And we know that that's talking about, about David, but there is going to be a transition. There's going to be a shift that's going to take place. And that was a very interesting statement. Uh, And Mike focused on the heart and how we have to guard the heart. I don't know if you guys saw this one slide. It was towards the end of his PowerPoint. And it wasn't one of his big bulleted, bold PowerPoints. It was just kind of a minor point that he was making. But I thought it was really, really good. Mike wrote that the heart always goes first and then actions follow. The heart always goes first and then actions follow. And I thought that was a really, really intriguing statement. Here's what we're going to talk about this week, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, chapter 14 is kind of lengthy. It's not that I'm going to be teaching more than I normally teach. We've just got a lot to, to read, so we'll get into that as soon as possible. But what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about living in God's will, how we live in God's will, basically how we hear from God, and then that there are very, very dire consequences for not living in the will of God. When we live outside of the will of God, we're going to use this word several times today, we, we, we wreak havoc. There is havoc in our lives when we live outside of the will of God. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, before we get into this, um, I'm sure most of you are, are, are knowledgeable of what's going on um, in the Middle East. If you're not, uh, you should be. It should be something that we're praying about, something that we are, are learning about, kind of the, the situations 
happening right there. And so this morning, if, if you um, feel so inclined, I'll, I'm going to pray, and we're going to pray for the people in the Middle East. Um, we're going to pray for Israel, and I'd love for you to, to, to just jump in and pray with me on those matters, not just this morning. You should be praying about that, about, about that every day. It's, uh, and listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch you a little bit. Uh, we pray for Israel for, for lots of reasons. A, they're humans. B, uh, there's a promise made to the people of Israel from God. And, and I think we as Christians are to, to, to honor that and acknowledge that. So we pray for them. And, and here's the other thing. Guys, there's, there's a lot of uh, people who do not know the Lord who are going to die. And, uh, and that should bother us too. And we should pray about that as well. Jesus even goes so far to say to pray for those who persecute you and love those that hate you. Is that uncomfortable? Absolutely. Uh, but we need to be praying for all people in that region. And so uh, we're going to do that this morning just for a minute, and I'll pray for us. We'll get into the Word of God. You know, this morning's a little heavy, and, and sometimes I'll get emails, man, it's a little heavy. You know, we live in heavy times. And um, it doesn't do me any good to beat around the bush or just create some kind of false sense of security that everything's all right. So uh, we're just going to be honest this morning, and... and might have a couple of laughs, a couple of cries. I, you know, I don't know. But um, a couple of laughs right there. That's good. Uh, but let's pray, and then we'll dive into the Word, okay? Father God, we love you. Lord, we, we, we are thankful that, that, that currently we live in a part of the world to where we don't have to worry about missiles hitting our neighbor's house, God, or um, being evacuated from our homes or, or people crossing a border and hurting us, God. Father, thank you, Lord, for the comfort and luxury that we live in, and I pray, Lord, that we never, never, never take it for granted. God, as we live in a very comfortable, free place, Lord, we pray for those in parts of the world that do not live in comfortable, free places, God, people who are attacked, God, and people who are hurt and people who are oppressed for their religious beliefs, and God, we pray for Israel, we pray for uh, the leadership of that country, we pray for the citizens, we pray for the army of that country, God. Lord, we pray for the surrounding nations that do not know you. And we pray, God, that you reveal yourself to people, Lord. We pray that, um, God, in whatever way you see fit, Lord, that, that mercy is, is poured out, but, Lord, also justice. And so, Father, it's complicated and it's hard and, and, and we may not understand it all, Lord, but you all knew, you knew all this was going to happen before, uh, before you even created the foundations of this planet. So, Lord, we trust you in all this. We love you. Lord, be with us today as we study your word. Enlighten us, help us, teach us, instruct us. Um, God, we pray for all the churches in our area. Of course, we pray for this church, Lord. And we pray that as we study your word, God, that you just draw us closer to you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're in the middle of a war with the Philistines in chapter 13. That's where we pick up in chapter 14. This book's in the Old Testament, ninth book, I believe. Uh, I'll read a little bit. I want to say a little bit, a lot, and then we'll go back and we'll, uh, we'll break it down, okay? Now, a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. That same day, Saul's son, Jonathan, said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gabeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. Aisha, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Aitub, the brother of Ichabod, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. But the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. 
There were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes, the other was Seneh. One stood to the north in front of Michmash and the other stood to the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Let me pause there just for a second. When the Bible refers to uncircumcised men, that's not necessarily a, 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 a nationality thing. These are people who have not taken the covenant with the true God. So there were people who were not Jewish by blood that became followers of the true God that went through the covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament. So what he's saying here is these are people who are opposed to our God, the uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead, I'm completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied, we'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll come on up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson, they said. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer behind him and Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half acre field. Okay, so in chapter 13, and even before chapter 13, we start to see the inconsistencies and the weaknesses of Saul. We really see it in chapter 13. In chapter 14, we see the exact opposite in his son, Jonathan. Jonathan was vastly different from his father. He was a man that had a relationship with God, and he knew that if he had a relationship with God and he was faithful to God, listen to this, he could live in the promises of the word of God. If he had a relationship with God and was faithful to God, he could live in the promises of the word of God. And one of the promises in the word of God says that the Lord will cause the enemies who rise up against you to be defeated. Jonathan understood this. He lived in this, so he wasn't living in fear. And that leads to the second point. Jonathan was a man of courage. His dad was sitting under a pomegranate tree, and while his dad was sitting under a pomegranate tree, Jonathan was, was strategizing and praying about how to attack the enemy. He had courage. He trusted God. He, very important, because Saul didn't do this, he waited for an answer from God. And also notice this, he had a faithful friend next to him. He had someone to go into the battle with him. So we learn that true Christianity involves courage. It is impossible to follow the God of the universe and live in paralyzing fear. Fear is not a product of God, says the Bible. We gain courage. How do we get that courage? We gain courage through praying, through talking to God, through the promises of the word of God, the wisdom of the word of God, the encouragement of the word of God. And yes, we also gain courage by having some good people around us to lift us up and edify us sometimes. Very important what we see in Jonathan as he goes into this battle. We also see that sometimes faith defies logic. 
You got one guy sitting there, and if you notice, they're, they're gonna fight uphill, which strategically, that's harder to do. So he's looking uphill, and he goes, okay, there's 20 guys up there. There's one of me. I got my armor bearer, too. The odds were stacked against him. But he also knew, this is very important, that even though the odds were stacked against him, if he was in the will of God, there was nothing that could stop him. It's very important. Now, listen, we have to be careful with that <laughs> because some people take that and they look at just really unrealistic or crazy situations. And because God can do all things, they think that, that, that they can somehow manipulate that to do things that are unreasonable. Like if you're a five foot 10, 44 year old, you know, father, and you're like, I want to play in the NBA one day. Like God can do all things. Um, okay. We also have brains guys and God gives us those. So listen, God is the God of faith and God is also the God of logistics and logic and reason. He's the God of both sides. And we have to live in a balance of those things. That's why a couple of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are wisdom, discernment, to know that there are some things that, that we shouldn't take on and that we shouldn't do. But again, faith often defies logic. So each step that Jonathan took was marked and surrounded by asking God's will, seeking God's will. And so when we have courage, when we have faith, when we are obedient, we can live in the will of God. This is so important, listen. And when we live in the will of God, we can look evil in the eye and we can address it. We, we can tackle evil head on. And this is very important. And we'll say it several times today. In your personal life and in society, we need to identify what is evil. We need to be courageous enough to say this is wrong. And it's not wrong because I feel like it's wrong. It's wrong because the word of God says it's wrong. Because my feelings can be deceiving. Culture is deceiving. And so we have to go to the word of God. How do we identify what is right and wrong? The word of God identifies what is good and what is bad. Regardless of what we think, regardless of what is popular, if the Bible says it's a sin, it's a sin. And so we not only have to identify evil, we have to address it, which means we repent of it. That doesn't just mean that we're sorry of it, it means that we get away from it. Our problem though is when we lack a fear of God, when we lack a fear of the judgment and wrath of God, we ignore sin because we don't think it's that big of a deal. And we see not only our personal lives fall apart, we see society as a whole start to fall apart. Have you seen the United States lately? Are your eyes open to this? Seriously. So we have missed true success. We're the most prosperous free nation on planet earth, but we have missed it. We have missed true success. I've said this before. There is no nation on planet earth that puts out the vile things and condones the vile, grotesque things like the United States does. There's nobody. You can look that up. So, so John believed, Jonathan believed that he would have success, true success, if he obeyed God regardless of the circumstances that he found himself in the middle of. Now, when we say success, I'm not talking about how much money's in your bank account and how nice of a house you live in. Those things are not bad and those things sometimes come with true success. But when I speak of true success, the key to true success, I'm talking about the key to joy and contentment and peace and healthy marriages and healthy families and healthy work environments and healthy relationships with your boss and your neighbor. That's what true success is. And if we want to live in that, we have to pray and we have to be obedient. And I know I'm being redundant this morning, but 
We have to keep saying these things. And it is in that relationship with God through prayer and obedience that we live in the will of God. And Jesus even said, whatever you ask for in my name, you will receive. That means whatever you ask for in my will, you will get. So if we live a life in his will, we live a life of true success. That's what God wants for us, to have those things, okay? Next part, this part's really long, bear with me. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen in Gabeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, call the roll and determine who has left us. They called the roll and they saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. So Saul told Aisha, bring the ark of God, for it was with the Philistines at that time. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. Saul and all the troops went with him, assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also uh, joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. Verse 23 is important. So the earth, uh, I'm sorry, so the Lord saved Israel that day. The battle extended beyond Beth-Avon and the men of Israel were worn out that day for Saul had placed the truth, troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Everyone went into the forest and there was honey on the ground. And when the troops entered the forest, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any because they feared the oath. However, Jonathan had not heard his father make the troops swear an oath. He reached out with the end of his staff he was carrying and dipped it into the honeycomb. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Then one of the troops said, your father made the troops solemnly swear the man who eats food today is cursed and the troops are exhausted. Jonathan replied, my father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been that much greater. The Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Agilon. Since the Israelites were completely exhausted, they rushed to the plunder, took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground and ate the meat with the blood still in it. Some reported to Saul, Look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. Saul said, you have been unfaithful. Roll a large stone over here at once, he said. Go among the troops and say to them, let each man bring me his ox or his sheep. Do the slaughtering here and then you can eat. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood in it. So every one of the troops brought his ox that night 
and slaughtered it there. Then Saul, look at verse 35. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord and it was the first time he had built an altar to the Lord. Okay, that was a lot of reading. So John's surprising victory struck fear in these, in, in these Philistine garrisons. Garrisons were like small kind of small groups of, of, of soldiers. On top of the fear, because of Jonathan, you know, killing 20 guys in a half acre kind of by himself, on top of that, God miraculously made an earthquake happen to further cause panic among the Philistines. I'm not trying to get political. I found it really interesting about the same time that this, this war broke out in Israel and in the Middle East, there were two kind of very uncharacteristic uh, earthquakes in that area, which is just interesting. So after the enemies panic, fall, Saul sees that they're, that they're panicking, right? They're even fighting each other because they're in such confusion. And he says, all right, let, let, let's do something. Now, what we're gonna see is this. The, the, this is a weird way of saying it. The really the only consistent thing about Saul is his inconsistency with God. That's the only consistent thing really about Saul is the fact that he's, he's inconsistent, that he's not faithful. And so verse 23 makes it very clear who was responsible for the victory. Yes, God can work miraculously through people and, and God worked miraculously through Jonathan and his armor bearer. But the Bible is clear. Ultimately, the victory belongs to God. God is who saved Israel that day. And so this is something that we as Christians need to remember. Real Christians, true Christians, are, are utterly dependent on God because the real Christian understands the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from him. And listen to me. As we get more successful in life, if you work your way up the corporate ladder or you have a great marriage or you, you, know, you do get to buy that dream home or whatever happens in your life that is a win, that should actually cause the Christian to become more and more humble because we understand the more blessings we have, it's because God has allowed us to have those things. Arrogance and the Christian should never be synonymous. It should never be synonymous because it is all because of him. It is all because of his mercy. It is all because of his grace and provision. And so as the battle continues, Saul, Saul said, okay, okay, we won a couple of battles here. We want to win some more. Everyone fast. All the troops are not allowed to eat anything. And if you do eat anything, you're going to be cursed, which means there's going to be a harsh, harsh punishment if anyone broke this fast. Now, listen to me. This is where we're going to get maybe a little personal. What we see in Saul is this. We see a person that has no relationship with God trying to use religious actions to make sure that they have success in life. Let me tell you what that means. It's like living however you want six days a week, thinking that if you just come in here for an hour and a half once a week, that everything's okay. Do you hear me? Seriously. We're going to talk a lot about religion today. And religion cannot save your soul. Religion cannot save your soul. What do I mean by that? There is nothing wrong with fasting. This church does it every single year. We do 40 days of it together every single year. It is the heart behind it that matters. If you fast because it's a good dietary plan to start your year off, you've missed the point. Nothing wrong with fasting. Jesus even said some things only happen when we pray and when we fast. It's good to come to church. The Bible says in Hebrews not to forsake this. This is important. It's good to listen to worship music in your car. 
All those things are good. But if we do not have a relationship with God, all those things have no power. There's no power into just coming in this place in and of it by, its, by itself. There is no power in just, just doing incremental fasting unless it's to get closer to God than to truly deny yourself some pleasures so you can think about him more. The problem is, I'm gonna ask the question, but I think I already know the answer. We've all done this. Do we think we can somehow manipulate and trick God into blessing us when we have no relationship with him? That's what Saul was doing. I never talked to you. We just learned in this part right here, he's never built an altar to God in his entire life. But when he needs a favor, hey God, I went to church for an hour and a half. You owe me this. Hey God, I dropped a couple of bucks in there. You owe me this. God, I prayed. You owe me this. Hey, God owes us nothing. But in a relationship with him, we are blessed. Do we think the repetitious religious acts without obedience to God works? I'm not trying to point out any of you and I'm not thinking of any specific person, but there are people who are here every single weekend. They may even serve, but then they leave this place and they live in conscious sin and they wonder why they can't hear God and they wonder why their life is chaotic and they wonder why things aren't lining up correctly. It's because even though we have the appearance of religion, we don't have a relationship. And it doesn't work. That's why even like in the states of Tennessee where we have mega churches and we're the Bible Belt, we have, the, it's the second or third most violent state of all 50. Did you know that? More violent crimes in Tennessee than New York, than in California, than in places like, we always point fingers, look how lost they are. We have a veneer of religion, but obviously a lack of relationship. There's a problem. We think we can somehow trick God. And we can't be, don't, don't be deceived, the Bible says. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. And so he makes, he makes everyone do this fast because if we just fast, we'll win. It doesn't matter if we talk to God, but if we do this religious thing. And so they're fasting, they're hungry, they're walking through the woods and they see a bunch of honeycomb with just, just honey oozing everywhere. They can't eat it. It's kind of funny to think about this. Maybe it's just my sick, twisted mind. Jonathan's walking with him. And he's like, oh, stabs some honey with his spear, pulls it up, and you know, honey all over his face. It's all over his shirt. He's just eating the honey. He's feeling good. He's like, man, I feel good, right? That, that honey rush. I don't know if that's a real thing, but anyways, he's feeling good. <laughs> and everyone's looking at him, and they're like, man, we swore an oath not to do that. And Jonathan goes, I didn't know anything about an oath. Not only did he not know anything about the oath, he goes, that's ridiculous. To ask us to, to, to do this fast in the middle of this fighting, we haven't even consulted with God. And he saw that his father was bringing destruction because he was selfish and because he was foolish. And that goes back to the false sense of security that is religious action. Again, fasting is good, but... When we do it out of selfish ambition, if you fast with us at the beginning of this next year just because you want to lose 10 pounds, completely miss the point of fasting. If it's just about, well, I'm going to cut out complex carbohydrates during this fast, you've missed the point. The point is to deny ourselves pleasure so we can more associate and understand the suffering of our Savior and to get closer to Him. And so when we do religious actions just out of selfish ambition, we dishonor God. It's dishonoring towards God. 
And we're going to learn in 1 Samuel chapter 15, just like Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 21, that obedience to God is greater than sacrifice. I'm going to say something weird for a pastor. I'd rather you not come to church on the weekend and be dedicated to the Lord the other days of the week than just think coming in here once a week for an hour and a half saves your soul. That is dangerous. Do, do, do we sacrifice only in times of desperation? Only when our wife leaves, we come and we grovel, Lord, I need you. I'm not saying God doesn't hear us when we cry out, but if it's just sporadic sacrifice to try to get God to bless you instead of consistent obedience, again, the heart is misplaced. The heart is in a wrong position. And that's why we don't see long-term success in life. That's why we don't see the blessings of God. That's why we don't see the wisdom and experience the discernment of God because we give sporadic sacrifices. And the Bible says that's not what God wants. He wants consistent obedience. So after the Israelites struck down the Philistines, they rushed to the plunder. Now this probably isn't as grotesque as our imaginations take us at all services so far. Whenever I read this, they just ate meat with blood in it. You get like this image of like the lost boys and, you know, people just eating, you know, raw lambs out in a field. It probably wasn't like that. They, they went, they took a bunch of animals and it says they slaughtered them on the ground. The Jewish people, when they slaughtered animals, they had to do it on an altar or a stone so the blood would run off the animal and then they would cook it. And that's why Saul says, this is the wrong way, get, get a stone. They brought a stone over and then they sacrificed the correct way. But the point is this, Saul, we see kind of picks and chooses the things he wants to do. He thinks just following the rules is the way that you, you, know, you win in life. And it was more than that. Again, he's, he's missing the relationship versus the religion or the legalism. And it says, this is the first time he ever built an altar. And the reason why Saul built an altar is he was afraid of God's wrath. The men had broken Leviticus chapter 17. They had eaten the meat incorrectly. And he wasn't building an altar to, to God to say, thank you. Thank you for provision. You know, I love you, God. I just want to make this marker for you. He was building it because he was afraid of the consequences. And so we see not only an inconsistency in Saul, look at this yellow part. We see the false idea that we can commit a sin and simply do some kind of religious act to atone for that sin. Coming to church is good. Worship music, good. Fasting, good. Giving, good. Serving, good. All these things are good. The point is this, that kind of religion without the relationship is empty. And we often think, well, man, I can get drunk on Saturday. I'll just go to church on Sunday. That is not repentance. The only thing that atones us from evil and sin is the blood of Christ. The only way to live under the blood of Christ, that forgiveness and grace and mercy, is to have a relationship with him. If I cheat on my wife and then go, well, I'll just read my Bible for an hour. Reading your Bible is a great thing to do. I wish more people would do it. But until we turn away from that sin, we are not right with God, regardless of how many churches that we don the doors of or, or whatever we do. Well, I did something evil. I'll just give some money to the church. Hey, appreciate it. We need it. We don't have that much, but that's the thing. You've still missed the point. We have to turn away from evil if we are to hear God. Okay, last part. So 
Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines tonight and plunder them until morning. Remember this, don't even let one remain. Remember that. Do whatever you want, the troops replied. But the priest said, let's approach God here. So Saul inquired of God, should I go after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But God didn't answer him that day. Saul said, all you leaders of the troops, come here. Let's investigate how this sin has occurred today. As surely as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even if it is because of my son, Jonathan, he must die. Not one of the troops answered him. So he said to all of Israel, these are the troops, you will be on one side and I and my son, Jonathan, will be on the other side. And the troops replied, do whatever you want. Saul said to the Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? Let me pause there for a second. If you go back and read about Saul, Saul was never really serving God. Saul was serving Saul. If the unrighteousness is in me or in my son, Jonathan, Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the fault is on your people, Israel, give Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were selected and the troops were clear to the charge. Then Saul cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan, and Jonathan was selected. Saul commanded him, tell me what you did. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey. With the end of the staff I was carrying, I'm ready to die. Saul declared to him, may God punish me and do so severely if you don't die, Jonathan. But the people, the soldiers, said to Saul, must Jonathan die? He accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground for he worked with God's help today. So the people redeemed Jonathan and he didn't die. Then Saul gave up the pursuit of the Philistines. Remember earlier he said, not let one live. And the Philistines returned to their own territory. When Saul assumed the kingship over Israel, he fought against all of his enemies in every direction against Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever Saul turned, he caused havoc. He fought bravely, defeated the Amalekites, and rescued Israel from those who plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua. The names of his daughters were Merab, the firstborn, and Michael, the younger. The name of Saul's wife was Ahenoham, and his, uh, the daughter of Ahimoaz. The name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Saul's uncle Ner. Saul's father was Kish. Abner's father was Ner, son of Abiel. The conflict with the Philistines was fierce all of Saul's days. So wherever Saul noticed any strong or valiant man, he enlisted him. Okay. So after a couple of victories, Saul gets a little overzealous. Hey, let's keep on attacking our enemies. Let's go get them. Let's keep pursuing. Let's keep pursuing. And in the middle of that, his soldiers were like, they're, they're just trying to do what their king is telling them to do. Do whatever you want. They're probably tired, probably fatigued. And all of a sudden the priest says, maybe we should pray about what we're supposed to do. Novel approach, right? Maybe we should ask God what he wants us to do. And it says that Saul inquired of God. Now that word inquire can mean two different things. It can mean to simply ask, right? You inquire about something. It also means to draw close to. 
it appears like Saul is doing the first one. He is just asking questions. He's not necessarily drawing close to God, and we're going to learn why we, 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 we believe he's not drawing close to God. Because when he prays, Saul hears nothing. There is no answer from God. Now, here's the thing. I bet all of us in this room have asked God questions before. We are going to get one of three responses when we, when we ask things of God. We're going to get a yes, we're going to get a no, or we're going to get nothing at all. Now, sometimes we get nothing at all because God wants us to learn patience. A lot of us in this room, I'll be the first to, to, to volunteer and say, I'm one, need to learn more patience. I'm a very impatient person. I'm a fixer. Any other fixers in the room? There's a problem. I want to fix it. I want to get it done, right? Let's, let's solve this. And that's not always the way it works. Sometimes God wants you to stop. Be still for a minute. Listen, listen, right? The other reason though that we don't, and this is more the more typical reason why we don't hear from God, is Saul had unrepentant sin in his heart. And when we have unrepentant sin in our heart, when we have not dealt with the evil within us, we are incapable of tuning into the frequency of God. So in order to be in a relationship with a holy God, we must strive to be holy people. This is why the Bible says, be holy like I am holy. Living in the will of God, it's like turning on a radio and being like, man, I want to listen to this you know, sports thing about this, but, but we tune into a completely different station. Well, why can't I hear that? Well, we're not on the same frequency. Or, or it's like we, we turn on the radio, but the antenna is not up. We cannot pick up the frequencies of God. So when we're living in rebellion or opposition to the ways of God, we cannot expect to clearly be able to decipher, are you hearing me, his voice. So we have to be on the same wavelength. So, so notice what Saul does when he is incapable of hearing the voice of God. This is what Saul does. He does what a lot of us do whenever we can't hear the voice of God. We blame it on other people. Saul goes, God, what do you want us to do? He hears nothing. And then he goes, okay, who has sinned? Who has done something wrong? Right? Completely oblivious to the, to the fact that it is him. And so he starts pointing the finger. It must've been the pastor that hurt my feelings 10 years ago, or my parents, or it must be the president, or it must be my boss. Someone else is the reason why I am not seeing the things in my life that I want to see. And what we learn is this, is that pride is really the root of all sin. People say, well, it's the, I thought it was the love of money. The love of money, money buys things for us. It is the same thing whenever we are constantly thinking about self, whenever we think that we can do no wrong, whenever we have bought, listen to me, whenever we have bought into the lie of the Western world that you are okay just the way you are. That is a vicious and antithetical lie that, that goes completely against the Bible. Listen, let me tell you why. Well, Corey, you're saying I'm not perfect the way I am. I am absolutely telling you that. <laughs> because here's what happens if we think we're okay just the way we are. If I'm okay the way I am, I am in no need of saving. And if I am in no need of saving, I am in no need of a savior. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see where I'm going with this line of thinking. So if I'm born okay and live okay and everything I do is okay, if I can create my own truth, regardless of biology, theology, logic, reason, whatever, if it's all about me, I am in no need of a savior. And the thing is, is that none of us are okay apart from God. There is no good thing, the Bible says, apart from God. 
And when we think we're okay without him, we have believed a vicious, destructive lie. And here's the thing, when we buy into the lie that it's not us, it can't be us, I'm good. When we buy into that lie, listen, we are incapable of seeing the signs of God. Here's what Saul does. Saul goes, there's a problem. Grab the Urim and the Thummim. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, that is a white stone and a black stone that the Jewish people would use. And, and here's the thing. Periodically in the Bible, they would cast these stones because a righteous leader has said, okay, I'm having a hard time deciphering the word of God or not the word of God, but the voice of God. Let's cast the Urim and the Thummim and, and, and that will tell us what to do. But they were righteous. And when a righteous person looked for the sign, they could decipher the sign. The problem here was an unrighteous person tried to distinguish the signs of God. And what did he conclude? It's my son's fault and I'm gonna kill my son. He totally missed what God was doing. And what we learn is this, we cannot decipher the signs of God when we are not living in accordance with God. All the time people come up to me and they're just like, Corey, I think I've been seeing signs. I think I'm gonna do this and move here and leave this person. Been seeing signs. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. A, have you, have you put that up against the word of God? That's one thing. Two, how do you expect to be able to see signs when you're living in the blindness of the truth of God? You're incapable of seeing those signs. This goes back to the gospel of John. Seeing isn't believing. It is only when we believe and are obedient to God that we are able to see. When we're not living correctly, we're incapable of recognizing what God is doing. And we can even twist and turn and manipulate things to say things that they're not trying to say. That's what's happening here. Fortunately, level heads prevailed. Saul was going to kill his own son and the soldiers step up and go, not today, not today. Saul, Jonathan has done amazing things. He had this amazing victory. And it said that the people redeemed Jonathan. They, they, they saved him from this situation and he did not die. You know, it's interesting. I told you to remember this. It says at this point, Saul gave up pursuing the Philistines. There was an evil, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about some of the people around the people of God here in the next couple of weeks because it explains why God tells them to wipe out certain people. But, but Saul was supposed to take care of the Philistines that day, but he didn't, he gave up. Ironically, those same people would come back and take his life and take his son's life. Do you know the lesson we learned from that? If there is unresolved and unconquered evil within our life, it is a guarantee that it will come back and get us. And it may even get our children too. I hope, man, I hope that, hope that resonates with somebody. And then we see something really strange here at the end of this chapter. It's a really weird place for this to be. It's not strange in what it says. It's just strange at where it is because we have a lot more of dealing with Saul coming up in the book of 1 Samuel. But, but Saul's legacy uh, kind of in a, in a nutshell is told from verse 47 to 51. And it says that he was an amazing military leader. He was extremely successful. It says everywhere he went, he conquered all these groups and he wreaked havoc. It didn't say wreak. It says that he caused havoc. Now that word havoc has a dual meaning and it's very, very interesting. And I think it's worth talking about for a second. The word havoc there, some of your translations, if you use a different one than me, the New Living Translation uses the word victory right there. Everywhere he went, he had victory. 
Now, when it comes to the world's way of looking at victory, he was quite successful, right? The other way to, to interpret that word havoc, though, is just like it says, a disturbance, chaos. Do you know what we learn in this word and in this in, in where it's placed here? We can simultaneously be successful in the world's eyes and do complete destruction spiritually, with our families, with our marriages. We can do both simultaneously. You can make millions and millions of dollars. You just may lose the relationship with your children in the meantime. So in one way you've won, in another way you have utterly lost. You may climb the corporate ladder and you may become VP or president or CEO or CFO and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you sacrifice your marriage in the meantime of that pursuit, you may have succeeded in the world's eyes, but you've caused havoc over here. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to be careful. We need to be careful because when we're out of the will of God, we wreak havoc. The first thing we need to do is this though. And this is very important nowadays. We need to learn to identify and address sin. We cannot afford, you cannot afford, your family cannot afford, society cannot afford to turn a blind eye to sin or to approach sin casually. Unfortunately, we do this more than we probably ever have in the Western world. So sin has to be identified. How is sin identified? Well, if someone comes up to me and they say, oh, Corey, what do you think about this? I will answer you, what I think about that is irrelevant. I'm a Christian, which means I subject myself to the teachings of this book. My feelings on a certain subject matter are irrelevant. What does God think about it? Because my feelings can be deceptive. Culture is deceptive. So we have to identify what is right or wrong by the word. Those things need to be repented for. And we also have to turn away from those things. And if we have the courage, listen, if we have the courage to address evil and sin, we discover God's will for us. And when we live in God's will, we live a successful life. That doesn't mean you're gonna have money. It doesn't mean you're gonna live in a perfect neighborhood. It means that you will have true success, joy, peace, love, contentment, fulfillment, good relationships. That's success, guys. And we can have those things, salvation, if we're living in God's will. But we have to be humble and we have to address evil. And legalism and religion doesn't achieve that. Religious action without a relationship with Jesus only creates a false sense of security. Well, Corey, I said a prayer one time when I was 12 at a camp. That's wonderful. If it was a genuine prayer, there would be fruit over the span of your life to prove that that was really salvation. And if there's not, there's a problem. And you're living in false security. If you think you can, if, if, if we think, I don't want to just say you, all of us, if we think that we can do whatever we want all week and just show up here for an hour and a half, and that makes us square with the Lord, we're sorely mistaken, sorely mistaken. It, it, it is very, very dangerous. There are no long-term results of religion or legalism without a relationship with God. And quite frankly, doesn't it wear you down? When, when we reduce a relationship with God, which isn't a relationship with God at all, to a set of, of boxes we check off, the problem with that is, is God knows that we can't check off every box every time. That's why Christ died on a cross because he knew we couldn't hold up the law. We couldn't fulfill the 10 commandments all the time. So God had to send an advocate for us, someone to justify us, someone to stand in the gap because we know we will fail. 
Legalism just wears us down. And true spiritual freedom and true spiritual power come through a consistent and obedient relationship with Jesus. How do we do that? And I say it every week, but again, it's worth repeating. We first have to have a prayer life. We have to pray. How much should we pray? Every day. We should pray with intentionality. We teach that here at the church. Thank God, repent of sin, pray for other people, pray for yourself. We should do that every single day. We should also periodically just touch base with God throughout the day. Any of you married couples do that? You just periodically call each other throughout the day and you're like, hey, I don't have anything important. I just want to tell you I love you. My wife has some kind of radar. She typically knows subconsciously that I'm in a meeting. That's when she calls. (laughs) But I'll answer and she's like, oh, it's nothing important. I love you. And I'm like, okay, you know. (laughs) We should do that with God sometimes. Turn off the radio in the car and just go, hey, Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for my kids. Thank you so much for my, my marriage. Thank you, God, that I, I, I live in a nation where I don't have to worry about a, a missile hitting my neighbor's house. Thank you, God. Sometimes we just need to touch base with the Lord a little bit. We also need godly community. We need to be in the word of God and we need to be obedient. And in that, we create a relationship with him and we receive power and we receive freedom and we learn how to hear God. But here's the thing. If we are to hear God, we first have to ask ourselves, who really is the God of my life? The world would tell you, you're the God of your life. Advertising campaigns and marketing campaigns and pop culture and movies and music and politicians will all tell you it's all about you. It is your truth. It is your destiny. You're in full control. It's all you. And the more that we hear the mantra of self-worship in the Western world, the United States, the more chaos we see. One has to be blind as a flipping bat to not see how destructive of a society that we've become. But here's the thing. When we're constantly focused on self, it's hard to see anything else. And we don't give a rip about what's going on on the other side of the world as long as it's not in my backyard. Man, but I hate to tell you there is evil in your backyard. There is destruction in your backyard. There is division in your backyard. There is hatred in your backyard. So we have to ask ourselves, who do we want to put in control? And if we are to hear from God, listen, if we're to hear from God, we have to stop acting like we are God and realize that there is a deeper perspective, a higher perspective than mine. There are even self-professing Christians, I dare say in this room, who will say, yes, I believe in God. I believe in Christ. Do you agree with 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Oh, I don't agree with that. So you're saying you're smarter than God. And we wonder why we can't hear from the Lord. It's because even when we profess to know Christ, we still claim to be smarter than him. And we say, well, why can't I hear the voice of God? Because we have not submitted ourselves to the word of God. We're not living in obedience And that's why we're not tuned into the right frequency and we can't pick up his voice. And there are deep ramifications for not listening to God. When we choose to not be moral people, 
When we choose to not be humble, when we choose to not be repentant, when we sin, when we choose to live in disobedience, we become incapable of hearing God. We become incapable of knowing his will for our life. And in that morality, that immorality, I'm sorry, in that immorality, everywhere we turn, there will be havoc. Even if we're the richest person in the block, life is going to fall apart in some way if we're not in the will of God. Even if we're the best looking person on Instagram, life is still going to fall apart if we're out of God's will. Even if we have the PhD on the end of our name, even if we have the doctor on the front of our name, if we have all these different things going on, nothing wrong with those things. But if we're out of the will of God, eventually there will be havoc. And if we're living outside of the will of God, when that havoc arises, we will not have the tools or the power to overcome it. You're seeing this in your society right now. Havoc, havoc. We're rich and we're lost. Havoc. So we have to be honest with ourselves. Are you and I identifying and addressing sin and evil in the world? Heck yeah, Corey. I tell people how sinful they are on Facebook all the time. (laughs) Let me tell you something about that. We have no business addressing the evil in others until we have addressed the evil within ourselves. A wise man once said, you have no business picking splinters out of everyone else's eyes when you have a plank of wood in your own. Matthew chapter seven. Jesus said, don't go trying to pick splinters. Don't, don't, don't go looking for the faults of everyone else when you have not brought your faults to the Lord. Do we have the courage to say, God, examine me first. It's not that we're not to help people get splinters out of their eyes. We should. But if I'm to see the problem, I have to remove it from my eye first. Do we have the courage to say, Lord, look at my heart and take out what is not pleasing? Have we let religion replace relationship? Listen, I know you're here, so you're not the culprit. Usually people have to sit on the floor because there's no room in this service. And I'm not trying to be mean, and I got nothing against football. But the Titans are playing right now as we speak. That's why we're low today. I'd bet my life on it. Now listen, if you want to miss the 10 o'clock service to watch a football team play, that's fine. We have four other services over two days. And I'll say it until Christ comes back for us. It really shows the priorities of American Christians. Well, I'll go unless there's a football game on. You can still watch the game. Well, but Tennessee's playing on Saturday. You can still go to the seven o'clock service. The game is over. You could come to the noon service. Maybe the noon will be packed. I wouldn't bet on it. But we just think if we clock in every once in a while when it's convenient, we're okay. Let me tell you something sobering. Jesus said on the day of judgment, people are going to come up to him and they're going to say, but Lord, we did all these great things in your name. And Jesus is going to say, but we never knew each other. And then he's going to say something really scary. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you people who chose to live in sin. That's what Jesus is going to say. There are even going to be people who do miraculous things like speak in the tongues of angels, 1 Corinthians 13. But if there's no love of God and love of people, 
the Bible says it's just a bunch of noise. Has religion replaced relationship? Are we inquiring from God for direction? Remember, inquiring can mean to ask questions. Inquiring also means drawing close. Are we drawing close to God for direction? And do we understand the ramifications of not drawing close to God? Havoc. I want that word to be ingrained in your brain for the next week or so. And when you look at the world around you, especially the one we live in, in this corner, right? Havoc, havoc. When we are out of the will of God, there is havoc everywhere we turn. Okay. Again, periodically I get an email. Corey, why why are you so serious today? Why? Listen. If we do a night at the movies and I compare Jesus Christ to Luke Skywalker, that's not going to change your life. A lot of churches doing bull crap like that. And maybe the reason that we have grown into such havoc in this country is churches don't teach this book anymore. And it may upset some people and they may want some happy, you know, clap and pat you on the back and tell you that you're okay. I love you too much than to let us put our heads in the sand and just pretend like everything is all right around us. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you do not have a relationship with God, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Mike. If you have any questions for Mike, he would would love to talk with you. He would love to talk with you. We also have men and women up at the front if you need prayer for anything in your life. It doesn't matter what it is. Anything in your life, if you need prayer, please don't do it alone. Let someone pray with you. And then the last thing is, all the way around this room, we have communion. That is bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's, it's on every table with a lamp on it, and then the majority of these pillars that you're sitting around will have disposable commun- communion on it. If you want to, and please respect others around you if you don't want to, but everyone is welcome to take communion. represents the body and blood of Christ. And um, everyone is welcome to take that, go back to your seat or, or, or take it by yourself or, or however you feel comfortable. The only prerequisite to that is, is we must ask Christ to forgive us of our sin. We must address that evil, if there is any, in us before we partake of, of, of the body and blood of Christ, okay? I wanna pray for you. Lord, I love you. God, I love the men and women in this room. I'm so thankful that they're here, Lord. I'm so thankful that they're listening, God. And Lord, even lessons today that seem heavy, God, I just pray that we live in the freedom, that we live in your will, God. I pray that we live in the power and the joy of having a relationship with you, God. And if there is anything in us, Lord, examine our hearts and forgive us, Lord, and help us to walk on the right path. God, you are quick to forgive. You're quick to show grace and mercy, Lord. God, we love you. We thank you. Bless everyone in this room. Until we meet again, God, we pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.